Hello, and welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. Just plain, simple Glenn McDorman. Okay, we have to talk in advance about these things because I was going to make the exact same joke. <laughs> I mean, I think you just should have gone for it. Well, now I can't do it because it's fun. It's, and where's my Garrick joke going to be? Yeah, your Garrick joke perhaps may be uh, creepily standing behind someone and rubbing their so- their shoulders in a <laughs> predatory manner. Well, well right. We are um, we we have leaned pretty heavily into just performing the script of the episode we're doing today. But the episode we are doing today is past prologue. This is the third episode of season one of Deep Space Nine. This aired on January 9th, 1993. It was written by Katherine Powers and directed by Vinrit Colby. Past Prologue came in first on one of our recent Patreon votes and coming in second, finally, Valerie, finally, was the Enterprise episode, Future Tense. So we will be doing that next month. It will only have taken us a year of being back on the air doing old school Trek for us to have actually gotten to do an Enterprise episode. Dear doctor or bust, I refuse. <laughs> I just had to take it off the ballots. It was just starting to depress me that it wasn't, it was always coming in last. <laughs> well, even though it is not Dear Doctor, Future Tense over on Enterprise beat out Voyagers before and after, and the animated series, The Lorelei Signal. I don't think anyone's surprised that the animated series isn't making it <laughs> on air. Yeah, sadly, I think the only way that we'll ever do a sort of devoted episode of the animated series on this show is is going to be if someone commissions it or if we just kind of shoehorn it in there. Though we will be talking about the animated series uh, as a whole coming up soon. Uh, before we get to that, before we even get into talking about past prologue today, I just want to remind listeners that uh, coming up next month uh, throughout September, we'll close the, the vote at the end of September, we're going to be having a special vote of our Patreon supporters from the second tier up to determine our next Patreon goal, which is going to be to cover one of the series of Star Trek movies. And we're deciding which one that's going to be. Is that going to be the original series movies, the original series, original cast movies, we should say, or the Abramsverse movies or the Next Generation movies? So I'm super excited to do the movies, whichever ones we do. Um, So join us. Join us at the second level and up on Patreon to vote. Let's get into past prologue today. I'm very excited to do just the third episode of Deep Space Nine. And we open with uh, the teaser with Dr. Bashir. He's sitting in the replimat. He's enjoying some Tarkalian tea when some Cardassian man we've never seen before asks to join him at his table. Uh, and hey, actually, it's Garrick. So, like, we've seen him before, but, you know, not at this point, right? And uh, it's crazy that this is the first appearance of Garrick, right? plain, simple Garrick, of course. And we learn here that Garrick is the last Cardassian on the station, uh, that he's a tailor with a clothing shop, and that people think he's a spy. He denies it, of course. And that is really it. That's what the scene is for. It's so that when Garrick matters later in the episode, we'll actually know who he is. But uh, as we've brought up, or at least I have brought up already, I really need to talk about how creepy Garrick is in this scene and how uncomfortable Bashir is. Uh, just just not okay. Not, that is not good touching, Garrick. Oh, I don't know. I completely disagree. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I... I I think I understand what you mean. You know, Garrick is definitely coming off pretty strongly here. Um, and that's, I think, what you're you're uh, drawing our attention to. Would that be correct? It, it, it is coming strong. And then, you know, the, the creepy touching from behind. Honestly, the scene just, I, I don't think I'd ever quite seen it this way before. But this really, like Bashir to me, felt like he was... Someone you know that you might see uh, alone in uh, you know a, a campus cafeteria or just a bar, you know, but wanting to be there alone, and somebody comes up and starts bothering this person and won't take the hints and go away, and actually just keeps escalating it and escalating it and invades personal space and even starts touching and oh wow, I just felt for Bashir in this scene because he just clearly doesn't know how to really tell Garrick to like don't touch me and please go away. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're reading the scene very differently. I see what you mean, obviously. Um, I mean, touching people with other consent is never something uh, that I am going to advocate for. Um, and also, I think there's there's something like a, a lot more complicated and a lot more rich and not inherently nefarious about this scene happening. The thing that we come to love about Garrick 
is that we never really know if what he's doing is malicious or very kind um, because he's never, he only speaks in subtext, right? Nothing that he's actually doing is ever explicitly, overtly right there on the surface. And yeah, he's like, he is a Cardassian. I mean, we don't know. We don't know. But we know he was a member of the Obsidian <laughs> Order, which was um, the the head Cardassian intelligence organization that kind of um, manipulates and orchestrates uh, nefarious acts um, for the Cardassian state. Um, and, and that Garrick was involved with that during the Cardassian occupation of Bajor, but we're, we're not really sure exactly what he did. All that being said, right, so just to put it out there that Garrick is a complicated character um, who behaves badly <laughs> um, and and certainly has behaved badly and will again in this show. I think there's something really cool going on in this scene. So the first thing is that Bashir is pretty excited to have like been chosen by Garrick in, in a way. He's uncomfortable because Garrick speaks in subtext and he has no <laughs> idea what's going on. And it's very difficult to... Um, it's clear that Bashir is not practiced in that kind of communication. Bashir is just very sincere and so doesn't really understand um, the conversation's flow or what is going on or, or why he was chosen. But we also know from the actor that played Garrick, Andrew Robinson himself, through several interviews, but also in the Deep Space Nine documentary, What We Left Behind, that he was explicitly playing the character of Garrick as what he describes as omnisexual, um, or what uh, some people might be more familiar with the term pansexual, as being attracted to anyone of any gender. And that in this scene, he was explicitly hitting on Bashir. There was supposed to be some sexual um, overtones or undertones. I mean, it's Garrick, so overtones. Right. Um, <laughs> and that, that that is what you're picking up on, on making you pretty uncomfortable, Glenn. And while I totally understand that, there's also, you know, and, and this is particularly strong in Deep Space Nine, Within the queer community, there are a lot of coded ways that people flirt or express attraction or talk. And so if we think about the way that Garrick is always speaking in subtext when it comes to whether or not he's a spy or whether or not you need to show up to try on a suit so that you can overhear a secret Klingon conversation, he's also using coded language to express his attraction, which is something that has such a strong history in the queer community. So you're not saying you're hitting on someone, but it's all in the subtext. And it was really cool to see that coded into the scene on a Star Trek show that at this point in the 90s, you know, wasn't was not being explicitly um, open about its stance on the LGBTQ community. So I actually see something really special in this scene. And I think that what Alexander Siddig is playing here as Bashir when he's looking horrified and terribly, terribly uncomfortable in this conversation, what Siddig is trying to play here is that Bashir knows that Garrick is a spy and or, you know, suspects that he is and realizes that he's making contact with him here and is afraid of that, is afraid of what that means. He's actually thinking he's in some kind of, you know, James Bond type danger or something here. But that I saw him putting up all of these stop signs that he simply couldn't articulate. And it just bothered me that Garrick was continuing, um, even though, of course, that's also Garrick's literal job here to be making contact with someone, uh, you know, in his position as, yes, actually a spy, despite all of his protests otherwise. But yeah, that's just all part one of the teaser. And so we're actually going to continue on with Bashir and we're going to see him switch actually from looking very uncomfortable to being very excited. We get to ops and Bashir is is really, well, yeah, he's excited, I guess, right? To tell everyone in ops that Garrick has talked to him. And he does now think that he's the target of some kind of, you know, espionage operation. He actually wants a monitoring device put on him. And this scene is meant to be funny, right? The humor of the scene is that no one else is taking Bashir seriously here. They're all, in fact, preoccupied with something else going on. And the something else that is going on, or at least that starts to go on in the middle of this scene, is the appearance of a Cardassian warship in the system. It is chasing a much smaller Bajoran ship, and it is firing at it. 
The Cardassians won't respond to hails, and when the Bajoran ship begins to break up, O'Brien beams the pilot directly to Ops, and the pilot is a Bajoran man named Tana Los, and he's requesting political asylum. Also, he recognizes Kira, and he's surprised to see her. So, yeah, what we get here from the teaser is that this is going to be an international intrigue story about Bajorans and Cardassians, right? That's just very clear here. But it's the Bashir stuff, I think, that really works in this scene. Like O'Brien and Dax are both, they're not holding back at all, really, as they make fun of Bashir here. And I think it's awesome. Yeah, well, we also have to remember that here in the first season and in the, in the second as well, that Bashir is... Um, Nobody likes him. <laughs> He's really just annoying everybody all the time. And the way that they kind of portray this and that Siddig portrays this is by being very green. He's just very green. The same way he's not picking up on either the um, political or the sexual subtext of this conversation with, with Garrick. He's just like everything is wondrous to him out here on the frontier, right? And and in the early episodes, we we get him talking about how um, in this kind of problematic way, he's just so excited to be out here where the exciting things are happening and has these um, childlike rose-colored glasses over a really complicated political situation. <laughs> um, uh, and... Then you have characters like O'Brien and and Kira, who and even Cisco, who have been doing this stuff, um, have lived through a lot more in their Starfleet careers. I think this is Bashir's first posting out of the Academy as well. And so just the naivete and the enthusiasm of Bashir is just like annoying everybody for two seasons straight. And we we get that right off the bat here in episode three. Yeah, Bashir is younger than everybody else here by at least 15 years. Uh, I mean, he's 25. Yeah, he just got out of not so much the academy, but out of med school, right? Which he went into straight from the academy, which he went to straight from high school. So yeah, he's like 25. Everyone else is at least 15 years, maybe 10 years older than him. I mean, you know, some of the people we're talking about here are aliens, so it's difficult to sort of really quite, you know, reconcile that. But even Jadzia Dax, who also is supposed to be very young, Jadzia is very young. Dax is not. Dax is Dex has a lot of experience here. And so, yeah, this is a kid. Bashir's a kid here who's really excited because he's he thinks he's, you know, getting involved in uh, the sorts of thing that he's, you know, seen on TV or seen in movies or comic books or whatever, and is really, really excited about it. And everyone else is like, eh, man, this is just a job. We just came to work today. Uh, could you could you get me some more Ractagino? <laughs> I've got something, you know, got something to work on here. You know, just the idea that he thinks that coming straight out of uh, medical school, that somehow he knows any Federation medical secrets, right? Like he knows anything that, that would be of any value to the Cardassian state is is just on its face absurd. But I'm, I'm happy for his excitement. And it also makes Bashir such a good target. I mean, again, we know from Andrew Robinson that he was a part of what was happening here is that he's thinking, okay, you know, this is a this is a good looking young man who's just arrived at the station. I would like to go say hello. Um, but you can also see how um, Bashir would be an easy person to manipulate, I guess, in terms of uh, spy stuff and even Garrick gets super annoyed with Bashir's naivete by the end of the episode, so he might regret <laughs> that choice. But uh, we do know later that they become uh, fast friends. They do. And, and of course, also, he becomes very good friends with Miles O'Brien, who literally rolls his eyes at Bashir in this scene. It's just, just priceless. It's so fun to return to the first season of Deep Space Nine, at least these these good episodes. There are some episodes that are less fun to return to, but it's, it's, it is fun to see the, the origins of all of these, uh, these relationships. Well, we come back from the theme music and we get a little backstory about our guest star, about Tana Los. He is a member of Konma, which is a hardline Bajoran terrorist group that has been continuing to use violence against Cardassia and, and Cardassians, even though the war is now over. They've also been using violence against other Bajorans. Uh, and these are Bajorans who have political agendas that Konma does not approve of. They even recently assassinated a, a prime minister, apparently. But Tanelos has requested political asylum, and Cisco's going to take that seriously. He's going to consider his, his claim, his request here. 
But of course, he's also got the Cardassian warship that he has to deal with. And this captain is insistent that he is not going to leave the system without Tanalos. And so Cisco is trying to delay dealing with the Cardassian captain until he can make up his own mind about Tana himself. And what's more, right, this is still only the third episode of the show, and so it's not clear at all where Kira fits into this. And she and Cisco get into a really nice, maybe not nice, but but interesting to watch, shouting match on the promenade. Kira is already starting to defend Tanalos. Cisco is not having it because he's not going to get the Federation into the business of protecting terrorists. And so Kira needs to get her priorities straight. But she reminds Cisco that she's not in the Federation. She She's here for Bajor, and that if Bajor is ever going to rebuild, then people like Tanalos will need to be repatriated. And I was really struck by her use of this word, by the use of the word repatriated. What do you, what do you think Kira means by this, Valerie? Well, it's interesting because, to me, the meaning is clear in that we need to... Um, allow these people to return to Bajor um, and to re-enter society uh, the way we want them to in a quote unquote civilized manner. Um, you know, the way that Kira is, right? That's what Kira stands for um, in this episode. Somebody who, I don't think they're using the word exactly correct, but Kira herself is somebody who has been repatriated, right? She herself um, was part of the resistance and now has adjusted her role, put put down her weapons, put down the fight and picked up a more political or, or diplomatic fight. And I think that's what they're they're talking about here. What's complicated is you... You would think that these people, the the Konma would, I guess, in their actions during the occupation, be heroes of a sort, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like not people who who need to necessarily be forgiven. I think the actions that have taken place maybe since the Cardassians left could complicate that. Um, but but that's the confusing bit. Is that where you were also confused? It, it is because I think that's exactly what is going on. That that. Yeah, uh, at the very end of the occupation, you know, these first weeks of Bajoran independence, the Konma and Kira are going to be seen as all the same type of thing. These were the resistance. These are the heroes. These are the people who beat the Cardassians, got them off our planet, uh, got us out of slave labor camps and got our freedom back. All heroes. And so the very idea that 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 anyone needs to be repatriated, right? Like, like you said, even just now, rather, Kira herself was repatriated, but I don't think that's right. I think what you mean is that she moved on from being a freedom fighter to having a, a, a day job, you know, in the civil service, essentially, right? That she's putting a life together in a in a free, independent Bajor with a fully functioning society, and that what has happened instead for the Kon Ma is that they have continued to to be freedom fighters, or in this case now terrorists, because they are unhappy with the political institutions that have been put in place following the withdrawal of the Cardassians, that they are extremists of some sort. We don't maybe really know what the political issues are, uh, like what the factions are, what actually it means to be extreme, what does it mean to be moderate, what does it mean to be in the center of something? We, we just don't really know what the issues are. We're going to get a sense of like what at least one of them is. But yeah, the Konma is, I guess, must be a group of these freedom fighters, people in the resistance, who s- decided to keep using violence as a political weapon and against their own people, which presumably they were doing during the occupation as well. And Kira too. In fact, we know this. This is the these are things we are going to learn later on that Bajorans who were collaborating were fair targets for these people as well. This really begins Deep Space Nine does not pull any punches. Um I mean that this is the third episode of the show. It's like really right. remarkable. <laughs> especially when the first two episodes were a two-part pilot. So but this is the beginning of something that will be an arc for Kira for the entire show. What does it mean for her to uh put down fighting in the way that she has known her whole life and pick up fighting in another way? Or what does it mean for her to just not fight at all anymore? And if she has an identity built on fighting and there being an enemy, what does she do with herself if she gives that up? And if she gives that up, 
is she enlightened and doing something that's really good for her home world and for herself? Or is she, as we will be told uh, by Tanalos at the end of the episode, a traitor? And this is this happens all through all seven seasons of the show. It even complicates, I think, the relationship between Kira and Odo because Odo can be argued was a collaborator. He's definitely a, a law enforcement official. Um, so this is just the beginning of a beautiful and and complex and painful story for Kira. And I love how strong of a character she is here right, right in the beginning. We're also going to get um, not the Konma explicitly, but this tagline, Bajor for the Bajorans, Coming back in uh, the opening, the three-part opening to season two involving the organization called The Circle, which uh, is fighting for um, basically the same thing that Tana Los wants here, which is for everybody to just leave Bajor alone. Um, no access, just close everything off. Don't let anybody back in because last time that happened, it did not go well. At this point in this episode, the conflict that we're seeing is between Kira and Cisco, and we're going to see that continue. But I'll, I'll jump ahead just a tiny bit here to say that the question that we really need to be primed for, that we need to be thinking about, that the show is wanting us to think about, is the question of of whether Tana Los is actually correct in his his objectives. Is he correct in his tactics as well? And is it the case, actually, that Kira is... Uh, is is a traitor is a collaborator is she simply collaborating with the new imperial power has she lost her way and i guess that's really the question right is uh, one of these people has lost their way it's either kira or it's tanalos though i suppose we could say that the third option is they both have but really the show is going to be asking us to decide which of them has it's going to come down on a side but i think you know we might set that aside and and ask that question uh, when 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 we get to it when the show really gets to it i think what we're also being asked to to pay attention to here um, is whether or not the Federation is is doing the right thing um, and whether or not, you know, this is the Federation that we have known in TOS and TNG and how we're supposed to view Cisco here. Because in these first couple seasons, we really do see a Cisco who um, is sometimes very dismissive of Bajoran interests and much more not necessarily not necessarily trusting but like willing to go along with the facade of trusting Cardassians um and Kira is always the counterpoint to that because she's seen uh, a lot of different sides of the Cardassians but here the way that um that Cisco behaves in this episode towards towards Kira doesn't really look like the federation officers we've come to know in other star trek so and then, of course, we can, you know, contrast this with uh, Cisco's actions, his own um, terrorist actions later on in the show. So I, I think we're also being asked to look at something about the Federation here. I, I wanted to flag that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And and one of the things that Deep Space Nine does so brilliantly is that it gives us these situations where not only are there not two sides and you just pick one, uh, like the one is maybe obviously more correct than the other or, you know, more righteous than the other. Uh, it's not even, we get three sides. We get at least four distinct positions in this, in this story that Cisco has to navigate and choose from. And that is a much trickier job than we have tended to see, you know, our, our captain characters, uh, involved in, in, in the, the two Star Trek shows that have preceded this one. So yeah, we'll, we'll keep our eye on that as we go. And let's, let's get back to the narrative here. We've got a, a few quick scenes in a row here. So I'll just try to race through them. The, the first one is that Cisco visits Tana Los in the infirmary. And, and here we learn that he's been imprisoned and tortured by Cardassians before. He tells Cisco that he's grown weary of being a terrorist. And now that the occupation is over and the war is ended, he's not even really sure what the killing is for anyway. And the idea, or really maybe the the, the, the motif, the topic of Cardassian torture is reinforced in another of these short scenes when O'Brien has some vague comments about his own experiences in the war with the Cardassians. And he uses the euphemism tender care to refer to torture here. 
And then we see Kira contact a Starfleet admiral for the, the sole purpose of complaining about Cisco. Uh, she claims that he's in over his head. And then in his office, Cisco actually gets a follow-up call from this same admiral. But her perspective on this is that Kira is the problem and Cisco needs to get his house in order. Uh, and then the last of these little scenes is Kira visiting Tana Lose in the infirmary. And here is where he starts to needle her about being an officer in the Bajoran provisional government. And he makes her really defensive about her choices. He makes her feel like she needs to prove herself to him, which she does not, but he's very good at manipulating her. And we get a, a heavy pause. There's some dramatic music at the end of this scene that lets us know, of course, that Tana Tana Lowe's knows exactly what he's doing, that he is intentionally manipulating Kira. So yeah, that's a, a lot of little scenes. There's a lot going on very quickly here. And it seems like the, the stakes are high in this situation for really for all of these people, for just about everyone, but that what is at stake for them is is different for each of them. Oh, there's so much going on here. You're right that that it's clear that Tonalos knows exactly what he's doing. And we get this little um, smirk towards the camera when he's like lying on a bed in sickbay and Kara walks out of the room that also really signals to us that he is not behaving in her best interest. And it's really tough to watch regardless of kind of, I think, what perspective you have because Kira is a character who is um, living with trauma and um, who really, really cares about her people and their future. And that makes her very easy to manipulate. And it's always hard to watch good people who care and have had hard things happen to them be easy targets for these kinds of things. Um, but it's it's her it's her passion that makes Tanalos's words land the way that they do that same passion that we see where she calls the admiral which you know what i think we forget we get so far into deep space nine that we it does start to kind of feel like kira is part of the federation but she's not <laughs> why would she pay attention to these rules what does she care about going over cisco's head right like she just needs to get what needs to get done for her people um and I, I love that about her. She's not worried about hierarchies um, or chains of command. The other thing we're talking about here is definitely this small little bit of information we get from Miles O'Brien. Um, there's so much happening here in this episode. It's really asking fans, and we haven't even gotten to the Klingons yet. It's really asking fans to like deeply, precisely remember a bunch of stuff that happened on TNG. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like things that like we're you know one or two episodes or a comment in a couple episodes it's asking us to like remember those and then build a whole character and universe off of them which which is a big ask but is really fun for us now to kind of dig dig into but what we have to remember here is that o'brien fought during the cardassian war and particularly he was there in the aftermath of the setlick three massacre um where the cardassians um killed i think hundreds um of civilians um and also, not only was he traumatized in those actions, he also accidentally killed a friend of his um, during the Cardassian War. And so he has a lot of resentment that uh, for being put in that position for that to happen at all, which comes out as um, very intense prejudice against the Cardassians. And we see more and more of that throughout Deep Space Nine. But we just get that in the littlest comment here. But it's such a big thing for the character. It's going to grow into something very intense and very serious for O'Brien, which is one of the, the really rich things that this series does. All of this comes out of the fourth season, I think, of The Next Generation, where the writers are, are giving O'Brien something to, to do in an episode that's about Cardassians. And it's... You know, it's just not there in the in the invention of the O'Brien character as the guy standing at the you know the, <laughs> the, 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 the transporter, right? Uh, but I, I've been watching some season two of of Next Generation for an episode uh, coming up in a few months here, and uh, it's interesting. You know, I was bouncing back and forth between watching this episode several times and then just making my way through season two of the Next Generation and just seeing O'Brien standing alone in the transporter room when like the plot comes in, you know, is what he's doing. And it's just think, yeah, this is a guy who just very, very recently 
I uh, was witness to some pretty heinous war crimes and then went through some traumatic combat experience. And um, this is a great assignment for him to just stand alone in the transporter room with nothing to do uh, most of the time that he's there and just sit with himself and work through that. And, uh, you, you know, you can actually see that. <laughs> you can see that happening in the character, even though it's not written into the script at any point. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes from uh, the middle of the fourth season, um, the episode The Wounded, I believe. Right. That's um, the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. And uh, also fun to see the Cardassians over on TNG, you know, when we when we know what happens, what they become, uh, how large they loom in Deep Space Nine. So interesting to hop around always, for sure. Well, speaking of Cardassians, uh, Cisco now has to deal with the Cardassian warship captain. So let's uh, let's get back to that. And uh, this dude here, by the way, this is uh, the actor Vaughn Armstrong, who also plays Admiral Forrest in Enterprise. And it's actually hard for me to not think about that, right? To not think that this is actually Admiral Forrest in disguise because Vaughn Armstrong is actually just, he's just so recognizable, uh, but he's doing a great job of just chewing the the scenery here in that villainous Cardassian way. But uh, at any rate, the deal is that the Cardassians want Tanalos because they think that he is in the middle of an active terrorist operation and they want to stop it. They don't want to allow him to do violence uh, against them. But Cisco is not just going to hand anyone over to the Cardassians to be tortured. And he is careful here, I think, too, to refer to Tanalos as a freedom fighter rather than a terrorist. And that's it here. That's it for this issue. Cisco explains that as long as Tanalos is on Deep Space Nine, then he has the protection of the Federation. And if Tanalos ever wants to relocate to Bajor, then the Cardassians can take up the matter with the Bajoran government. And this scene is the end of the first act here. And so this is all really meant to wrap up this part of the plot so that we can move into the next part. And the result is that we just want Tanalos to get this protection so that now the story can be about whether he really has given up his terrorism. And so the writers really just needed Cisco to have a reason to keep him here. And they settled on torture being the reason that Cisco's going to grant him political asylum. But I think it almost goes without saying, right, that we could have had an entire episode that is just about this issue of torture, right, where this scene is actually the end of the episode and not just the end of the first act. And so just like, wow, what a heavy episode that this is like the subplot and not the plot. You're right. I would I would obviously watch that episode. And that does sound like an episode of Deep Space Nine that they would do. It's definitely an episode or two they've done over on TNG. <laughs> um, and also for all of the the complicated morals of Cisco and the Federation that were being introduced here, I do love how uncomplicated this is. I'm not going to hand over someone to to people who will torture him and we grant asylum here next. Right. Like I do love the simplicity of it and the certainty with with which Cisco makes that decision. The fact that it's not deliberated, I think, is actually kind of cool. I agree, because if, if we're going to do an episode that's about the drama of making this decision, then it means that at some point Cisco has to be on the fence about it. And that means that we have to have some character in the story saying uh, torture is not really the issue here. Handing him over is going to be geopolitically advantageous for us or advantageous in some other way or is the letter of the law or something like that, like making a case for not caring that he's going to be tortured. And then we would have to have Cisco you know, triumphantly say the real morality of this issue is whether or not we're going to allow someone to be tortured, that handing him over to the Cardassians is morally the same thing as us torturing him ourselves. And so we're not going to do that. But I do think that you're right, that there's something powerful in that it's just not even a topic for discussion here. Realizing that the Cardassians are going to torture him, is that's just a complete deal breaker. There's just no way we're handing anyone over to you for that. And I really, and like you, I just, I really love the the, the moral strength of, of, of that. It's kind of silent moral strength that we get uh, on this topic here in this episode. Well, okay, so we're we're back in the infirmary for the next scene, and, and Kira is talking with Tana about her efforts to get the provisional government to offer him amnesty so he can get off Deep Space Nine. But she's also working on this uh, offer for any other Konma who will give up being terrorists. 
But Tana is mostly interested in the fact that Kira has become a politician and that she is working for the Federation. Because from his perspective, Kira is just now working for the latest group of oppressors, that she may as well just be working for the Cardassians. And he makes a, a pretty intense speech about how any foreign power is the enemy and that he wants Bajor to be truly free. This is where we get the Bajor for Bajorans that you brought up earlier, Valerie. So Tana, again, he doesn't come out right out and use this word, but he is calling her a collaborator. And now he's definitely manipulating her. He's trying to put her on the defensive. But I also, I think he he does actually believe this. I think he really does believe that Kira is a collaborator. It's not just that he's trying to, to use her. But I guess this is where we have to ask ourselves the same question, right? Do we believe that Kira is a collaborator? Is Kira collaborating with a foreign power who wants to control Bajor? I think this is a question that can be asked of Kira, not only in this episode, but as I spoke about earlier throughout the show. And to be quite honest, I don't know. <laughs> I I never settle on feeling like I know whether or not Kira is doing the right thing for her people or for herself, or whether she has really given up something super, super important for pe- her people and for herself. And they ask They ask us to think about this with her over and over and over again. I will say that she is probably actually my favorite character um, in in all of Star Trek. So I say this with, with immense love, but I actually genuinely don't know. And and I don't think there would really be a way for Kira to know in this moment either. I mean, the Federation just got here, like literally just got here. Like they just finished cleaning up the promenade um, from, you know, the way that it had fallen apart when when the Cardassians left the station. So Kira is acting on faith here that this is the right thing for her people. She that that's where she's placed her faith and her passions. And she just has to believe that this is the right thing to do the same way that Tana Los has to believe that what he's doing is the right thing to do. And it's that really dedicated, singular belief that allows them both to navigate the world because you know that's what they've had, fighting the Cardassians for so long, this, this one singular purpose. My response to Kira here and this question of whether or not she's a collaborator is colored by the fact that you and I just did the sixth season episode, Rocks and Shoals, which was a commission episode that we got. So we did that already. It's it's aired for Patreon supporters, but has not aired for the, the main audience here on Lower Deck. So I, I don't want to tip our hand too much uh, because that, that's a few months down the line still for the, you know, the, the vast majority of our of our audience here. But we get this question again, and though in that episode, it, it's actually Cardassian are back in control of the station and Kira is there doing this same job that she's doing for the Federation here in this, in this episode. And so that is definitely coloring the way that I'm seeing this. And it, it probably would have been profitable for us to have done these episodes in, in uh, the opposite order, uh, but, uh, but we did not. Uh, but the other thing I want to say about this argument, this conversation here, is that I think both Tana and Kira have this idea, this narrative in their minds that the resistance, the Bajoran resistance was able after several decades to get the Cardassians to leave Bajor. But that's not really true. That's not what happened at all. The Cardassians left Bajor because they were fighting a 20-year war with the Federation and losing it. And they, they couldn't control, they could not continue to put military resources into occupying Bajor and fight the war at the same time, which so not to say that the resistance is totally unimportant in that fact, clearly they are, but this is not a narrative about the oppressed rising up against their oppressor in a vacuum, that without the Federation actively fighting this war in which they're invading Cardassian territory and putting the Cardassians on the military defensive here, without that Bajor would still be occupied, but neither Kira nor Tana are thinking about it in those terms. And so I can see where, if your narrative is, we want our own freedom, that you then also might adopt the political position of, and anyone else, any 
anyone from any other part of outer space that comes here is someone who is someone we should regard simply as another occupier. Uh, you know, I can see where you get to that position. But the reality is that without the Federation here, the Cardassians will be back. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be next year, but it would be soon. But the Federation is here because they're wanting to prevent the Cardassians from launching another offensive war of expansion uh, against independent planets and against the Federation as well. And Bajor needs that in order to survive independently. And it's just not something that they're talking about here at all. So there's a sense in which I guess the question of whether Kira's a collaborator or not maybe is kind of moot for me. Yeah, Glenn, you know, thinking about our coverage of Rocks and Shoals um, and that conversation that we had, I believe I I defended the Federation strongly in, in that episode. So watch me turn it around here because <laughs> um, I am personally doing a Deep Space Nine rewatch right now. I am currently towards the end of season two, and I have already seen the Federation like trust and hang out with Gul Dukat way too much for my mm. liking. <laughs> Um, and, and so I do think there's, there's also this question of like what the Federation's interests are and if, if they really are the interests of Bajor, because what you've just said kind of, I think leads us to the conclusion that Kira is doing the right thing. This is what has to happen to actually protect Bajor from another occupation, whether now or later. But at the same time, there's also... I think some truth to the fact that the Federation cares more about themselves and their own interests than about Bajor and the Bajorans. And what ends up happening and what they don't see coming is that Cisco ends up caring way more about Bajor and the Bajorans than the Federation, um, <laughs> you know, as he spends more time here. Um, and then that complicates everything because this line between Cisco and the Federation isn't as clear as, you know, with Picard, where it's like, okay, Picard is the Federation, right? As far as we're concerned, more or less. Right. I mean, explicitly, Cisco's orders are to do whatever it takes to get Bajor into the Federation, to get them ready to apply for membership in the Federation. And one of the things that get them ready means is convince them that they should want that. It's explicitly imperialism. It's explicitly colonialism here. That's what the Federation is up to. And they're, you know, like we love the Federation. The Federation is us in the future. It's they're, they're us, but better in, you know, in space with, you know, cooler outfits than, uh, than, than we get to wear. Well, that's maybe not true. We've all just been wearing our pajamas for a year now too. But at any rate, what I'm trying to say is that we implicitly think of them as the good guys. But I, when we do take a step back, as I said, and for most listeners will say in the future in Rocks and Shoals, I'm not convinced that that's really true, that we should be rooting for them in this geopolitical situation. Some of this is complicated by the real world analogs that the Deep Space Nine writers and producers are working with here, where this is about the Second World War, and it is also about the start of the Cold War, in which the Bajorans are essentially survivors of the, the Holocaust, who are now trying to put together a, a government and their primary concern is, well, maybe twofold, right? So their concern is maintaining their independence with, through like, you know, security, right? Uh, but then also having to actually rebuild infrastructure so that people have enough to eat and people have shelter and just sort of the material necessities of life. So those are the things that, that are their interest. And so standing in also more broadly for uh, Germany, and for France at, at the very end of the Second World War. But then at the same time, the Cardassians are both the Germans and the Soviets in this analog. They are the people who were doing the oppressing. They're the people that the good guys defeated in the war. But then they were not totally defeated the way that uh, Nazi, the Nazi regime in Germany was, and Cardassia itself not occupied. The Cardassians are still there, are still a potent military threat. And so the, the geopolitics of this now is actually much more like the early Cold War, where they're playing the role of the Soviets. So wanting to have fewer players uh, in this drama um, so makes some of that a little bit confusing here. And which role are they 
in which role are they in? Some of the lines here, some of the moral lines might be a little bit clearer if we had more actors, if the Cardassians weren't both the Nazis and the Soviets and, and so on. Because it puts us in this corner here where not supporting the Federation on this issue means we're kind of supporting the Cardassians and we definitely don't want to do that. And something we're, we're touching on here too is is a is a much richer version of things that we've seen um, on Star Trek before, but this idea of encountering a people who have been harmed and therefore have closed themselves off entirely to outsiders. This is something that we're going to get a lot of um, on Voyager. I think we're going to get some of it on Enterprise. We definitely got some of it on TNG. It's it's a theme we return to a, a lot, um, though. Wow, did they really expand and complicate it here on Deep Space Nine? Yeah, this is all so complex, so complicated, and and yeah, for really what is just the second story this show is is telling. Just just wow. Uh, and I've I've just glanced at our recording timer too, and so you know, an hour ago, right before we started recording, uh, I literally said this will probably take us a little under an hour. Well, that's obviously not true. We're still just in the second act, but at this point, a lot does start to happen. So we'll we'll, we'll see where this takes us. So first up is that the the Duras sisters arrive at Deep Space Nine. These are a pair of Klingon aristocrats who once attempted a coup and they're now in exile. This is all stuff that, you know, we've seen before on on TNG. And it turns out that they're here to meet with Tana Lotz, who is purchasing something from them, but he does not have the money with him, though he assures them that the money is on the way. At the same time, Kira has worked things out for amnesty for Tanalos, but she needs Cisco to sign off on extending that to two other Konma members who, who want to quit being terrorists as well. And Cisco puts two and two together here and surmises that these two people are bringing the money for the Dura sisters. So Cisco is clearly just not at all convinced that Tanalos has reformed, and he is essentially conducting a sting operation at this point. And what's more, he doesn't want Kira to know about it because he doesn't trust her. And then finally, now Garrick is back. Garrick is the whole point of the teaser, but then we actually didn't see him for the entire first act. And I kind of forgot that he was the whole point of the teaser, but here he is now. And he too is keeping an eye on the Dura sisters. And that is because he wants to pay the Dura sisters to betray Tanalos and hand him over to the Cardassians. And he also wants Bashir to keep an eye on the Dura sisters. And so that confuses me, I have to say, about Garrick's actual motives here. But, you know, that's kind of what Garrick is for, is to be confusing and to have totally uh, murky motives. And in the end of, of all of this, right, the point of all of these dizzying plot mechanics is that we, the audience, really aren't sure who is a good guy and who is a bad guy. And in particular, I'm just not sure I trust Kira or Garrick. And that is a weird feeling to have having, you know, seen this whole show before and really loving both of those characters and thinking of both of them as good guys. But it that is just not clear in this story. We also just, I mean, what a beautiful introduction to Garrick and to Andrew Robinson and the way he plays this character. I love the entire scene at Quark's uh, where Garrick is just sitting not at all suspiciously alone in the back of the bar. <laughs> um, and, you know, Again, Bashir picks up on it, uh, not at all. <laughs> um, but the way that Garrick is is able to say so much that he's not saying, like, Klingon fashion is very interesting. In particular, those two outfits. We really ought to pay attention to them, right? It's like, it's just really masterful, Um the the writing and, and what Robinson brings to the character. And... All of this, especially all the the lovely Garrick episodes we get in the first couple seasons of Deep Space Nine, um, really makes me want to read and then maybe cover with you, Glenn, um, A Stitch in Time. Are you familiar with this book? Oh, is, is, is this a, a Garrick uh, Star Trek novel? Written by Andrew Robinson. Right, right. Yeah, we should definitely do that. I, I would love to do that. So let's just say we're going to do that. I would love, love, love to do that. But I think, you know, you uh, very neatly summed up what we've been saying in a more long-winded way for the whole episode, which is, it's really hard to tell who the bad guys are. 
And that's something I really love about this type of story. Deep Space Nine here is drawing on a tradition of storytelling, both in in uh, the written form and and also on screen about the early Cold War. And in fact, the whole business, right, with Garrick being a tailor is taken from the probably the most famous, I guess, of, of John Le Carre's uh, Cold War espionage novels, uh, Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy. Um, I actually happen to have a bookmark in the other most famous one, uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold right now. So before we go read uh, actual Garrick novels, I'd want to read uh, maybe a little more John Le Carre to prepare for that to do my homework. But this also is something that Graham Greene wrote a lot about the, one of my favorite movies of all time is the the third man which is a story maybe not quite with this much political drama but set in post-war vienna that's dealing with an occupation and dealing with uh the need to repair material life and so on and the the writers of this show just have really studied all of this material and are just doing an awesome job of capturing the feeling of all of that, setting it in a Star Trek universe, and then also making it a Star Trek story that is not just trying to tell us a story about complex, complicated characters in difficult, tricky situations, but also really inviting us to think about those situations and to try ourselves to come up with the right moral answer. And it's awesome. And then in the background of it, even though it's screwing with our love for TNG just from the get-go, um, from those first episodes, it's also drawing on on the fandom and the love for TNG and the people who are really paying attention um, to that show because we've already drawn on, you know, references to O'Brien's history that were very small in like one episode. Um, and here with Lorsa and Bator, the the Klingon sisters, we're drawing on um, a really fun arc that I think split um, seasons four and five. It was the cliffhanger at the end of season four and the opener at the beginning of season five of TNG Redemption parts one and two, which is where we get the Lorsa and Bator story. So to see them back here is also really fun. It's also just always a good time to see uh, strong Klingon women. Um, and then we're also being told what an asset or how unique Odo is as a character in this episode where we get to see him, you know, pretend to be a rat, shapeshift into a rat, <laughs> and then come back and do his human form. So they're just really from the get-go setting up so much wonderful stuff. And it's so different from the the pilot to TNG or the first season of TNG where kind of nobody is the character that they were <laughs> um, in the first season of TNG after we get past that. But here, everybody is who they are right away. Super well-developed. I, I love this business with Odo as basically Peter Pettigrew, I guess, in this in this episode. It's a sad fact that uh, uh, doing that special effect was just so expensive that they, they stopped doing it basically here. We could easily have the impression here in what is the second story of this show that they're going to really make a lot of use of the fact that Odo can change his shape, that he's a shapeshifter, but they really they really don't because the effect is just too expensive, which is is a shame, but that's okay. I love the Odo that we, <laughs> that we get here. And he's able able to have his own style of being a, a hard-boiled uh, police officer, even without us actually seeing on screen him transforming into to, you know objects and, and other creatures and so on as much as I would like. We, we do get it a couple other times in the first two seasons, at least. Um, and, you know, I think as the show moves on, we get it too. There's uh, the scene where he's massaging Kira uh, with yeah. his goo hands, right? <laughs> but... It's also, they, they get around it in other ways, like Quark frequently makes jokes where he'll like pick up a bar glass and be like, oh, just just in case this bar glass is Odo, God, had to check before we had our secret conversation. Um, so they allude to it in, a, in other fun ways. Also, one thing that I didn't know until relatively recently was that um, Andrew Robinson, who plays Garrick, was a finalist for the role of Odo. And that just breaks my brain a little bit to think about. Oh wow. Yeah. I surely that that some kind of audition tape is available on the internet and uh, we must we must find that. 
Well, all right. So this uh, this tension continues as Tana tells Kira that he knew she was here on Deep Space Nine and that this has all been part of his plan. So now he's actually trying to draw her into the plan, right? He's using her. Of course, we've seen that, but now we're getting the, the specifics of what he's actually up to. But then we also have Garrick now telling Bashir to come to his shop so that he can secretly overhear a secret terrorist meeting, although, you know, actually it's to buy a suit or vice versa. I'm not sure what's actually happening there, right? All of this is just to say, what is Garrick up to? We don't really know. But this is really about Kira, not about Garrick. And so she goes to see Odo in, uh, for me, I guess I have to say this was probably the best scene of the episode. Uh, And so she's talking with Odo. And the point is that she has to figure out who she is now that the war is over, and also, what is her vision of Bajor? And the real question, I guess, is should she help the Federation or should she help the terrorists? And Odo helps her realize that she already knows the answer. She doesn't want to be a terrorist, and so now it is time to tell Sisko what she knows about what Tanalos is up to. And yeah, I, I just love this scene so much. Kira doesn't really tell Odo anything specific at all, but she also tells him everything. And there's just some, just some absolutely brilliant, brilliant dialogue here. And this is really, you know, foreshadowing, like you were just talking about, Valerie, foreshadowing all of these character relationships here in just the the second Deep Space Nine story. But also, I really feel for Kira's moral dilemma here. It's, it's just so good. Odo also says so much while saying so little. He never offers direct advice. He never tells her exactly what to do. But every comment he makes is uh, is targeted to to ask Kira to consider something um, that Kira doesn't want to co- consider. And one of my favorite lines of the episode is when Odo asks Kira, you know, there's one thing about you humanoids I can't imitate very well. And she she asks what it is. And he says, pretense. There's a special talent to it. It's as hard for me as creating one of your noses. To which Kira responds, maybe that's why I've learned to respect your opinion. Never any pretense. And and then they just move on. But it's just, it's such a powerful, heavy thing. And the way that Odo is attuned to what humanoids are doing all the time, even though he can't quite understand it or replicate it, that the way he knows exactly what Kira wants and needs the second she walks in is, and then calls her on it. It's just, it's just so good. It's just all so good. We have joked before about how uh, Deep Space Nine, at least until season seven, has no counselor, though Deep Space Nine clearly is in need of one, like way more than the Enterprise, uh, the Enterprise D ever was. But here we we actually see Odo in a kind of counselor capacity here, at least for Kira. And he's kind of going to be Kira's counselor, or at least or at least Kira's Troy. Um to her Picard, I suppose, for the duration of this whole series, this whole show, and it's you know it's a great it's a great character dynamic, uh, but it's also interesting that but it also I think really works for me because I don't think that Odo is the person that many other characters on the show should actually be turning to, but he always seems to be the right person for Kira to turn to, and in this case, he has helped her see clearly what her position is. And so now it is time to bring this all to a close and and finish the sting operation. Because Bashir is working with Garrick, we learn that Tana is is buying a type of WMD, really, from the Dura sisters. But they're also going to give him up, uh, at least after they get their money from him. And that way they'll get money from Cardassia, too. And, and their motive here is just to get money because they want to raise more armies and try another coup. But Tana is also got a lot of scheming going on here. It turns out that he really does need Kira's help. He needs her help in making the rendezvous with the Dura sisters, because that's going to all happen in space. It's happening in orbit around the moon of Bajor 8. And so that means that he needs a, a runabout, and you can't just get one of those. So he needs Kira. And our heroes know all of this now. And so Cisco and his team work out a plan, and they're going to have Kira help Tana get a runabout. She's going to go with him to the rendezvous. But Cisco and O'Brien will already be there in a runabout of their own. And the idea here is that legally, they need to catch Tanalos in the act, because otherwise they just don't have any grounds for arresting and imprisoning him. So they do this, they make the rendezvous, they spring the trap. Uh, Tana gets a head start on getting out of there uh, with Kira on board. 
And now he's got his bomb, and what he wants to do is blow up the wormhole. But the bomb is is jettisoned, and so the wormhole is fine. And now Tana has a choice. He can either surrender to Cisco, or he can wait for the Cardassians to get him. Uh, and that wait will only be a matter of about a minute and a half, since they, they were also <laughs> waiting for the rendezvous, right? So it's not really a choice, right? Obviously, no one is going to choose the Cardassians in that situation. And so we end the show with Tana on Deep Space Nine in handcuffs. He calls Kira a traitor here, and that is the last line of the episode, but it's not the last scene of the episode. We hold on Kira's reaction to that, and then we watch her and Sisko walk down the corridor together silently. And that is the end. It's a brilliantly cinematic way to, to end this story. But my, my, my question here, the, 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 the big question that I have here, Valerie, as perhaps you may have imagined, or at least will not be surprised to hear, but my, my question is about legal systems. And it's... <laughs> I, I actually am surprised. I didn't. I was. I, I had a couple guesses about what you were about to say, but that wasn't it. <laughs> well, what I want to know is who actually has Tana now. Is 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 Tana a Bajoran prisoner or is he a Federation prisoner? It's just not clear to me. Oh, I I, I don't have a, a concrete answer for you, but I just assume Bajor. Definitely Bajor. That that just feels right. Like. The, Feder- the Federation's not even around. <laughs> like, it's just them on that station. Uh, what, what are they going to do? Yeah, I mean, in either case, it's going to have to be transported somewhere else to stand trial of, of, of some sort. And I guess it's really a matter of, of jurisdiction, right? Who has jurisdiction here, the Federation or Bajor? Also, whose laws is he actually violating? Like, what are even going to be the specific charges against him here? And I guess really it's that I'm envisioning that although this episode wraps up nicely in that the story has really been about Kira and Kira's arc here in this matter is over. It's resolved that there's been growth for her that but the geopolitical situation is actually about to get more complicated for Cisco, though we're never actually going to see him deal with any of this, you know, but you know, maybe the Bajorans have Tana, like you're suggesting, but I think the Federation probably is going to say, nah, I think we, we would actually like to, to have him because we have an interest in, uh, in the geopolitical situation with the Cardassians. He's wrapped up in it. So we want to be in charge of what's going to happen with him, or it might be the other way around, but in either case, like Cisco's morning, or even maybe just like his afternoon when he gets back to his office is not going to be easy. I mean, you make a really good point because I'm not sure if he committed any crimes against Bajor. I mean, he did try to, like, mess with the wormhole, which is kind of a big deal for them. But I don't know if they actually have legal jurisdiction over the wormhole. And the station is a Federation station. He, So, you know, and all this happened on a Federation runabout. I'd never considered this before, but maybe what happens next is that the Federation takes him and... Uh, Asks him to join Section 31. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. So we know that that doesn't happen on screen, but uh, that that could definitely happen in some some novels. But yeah, I want a sequel to this story. Like, I do actually want to know what happens to Tana. I also think the way that that the the actual cinematic nature of the episode, the visual language of the episode ends is with Kira walking away with Cisco, right? Because we're just seeing this as the symbol of Kira has picked a side, at least for now, and that side is the Federation, or at least her loyalty to this one man who she, you know, um, has her faith in, and he's representative of the Federation, which is so different than if we had done something where Kira met up with other Bajoran people on the station and we see her walk away with other Bajorans, right? And by making the choice to walk away with Cisco, it it leaves it open about whether or not Kara is a collaborator and whether or not she is a traitor, right? Like you could read it either way that she's making this, this righteous choice or, you know, that she's sealed her fate in this other way. Something that I I left out of the, the, the recap just to, to zip us through it is this conversation that she and Tana have about, the, the wormhole, right? When he reveals to her that the, the wormhole is the, the target, I guess it's not really when he reveals to her that the wormhole is the target, but they're just talking about the, the geopolitical situation and the future of Bajor in, in general still on the station where Kira is making the case that the wormhole is really, really important to 
Bajor because it is bringing material prosperity to them. But Tana doesn't care about that. In fact, he thinks that what that is doing is simply bringing foreigners to Bajor and that what matters is to keep Bajor for the Bajorans, to keep foreign powers out of Bajor, out of the system, and out of Bajoran politics. And what we get really is two people who care passionately about the future of their society, of their their, their homeland, having very different values, right? That Tana, Tana is interested in the ideology of complete and utter independence, even if that means impoverishment. But for Kira, right, what she is learning, I think, about herself in this episode is that her motivation for wanting to get the, rid of the Cardassians in the first place wasn't about the abstract idea of freedom. It was so that her life and the lives of all Bajorans would be better, right? That they would be safe, that they would not be being persecuted by outsiders, but also so that they would have enough food, would have shelter and, uh, in, you know, not just shelter, but like heat and cool air and, you know, comfort, material comforts and healthcare. In fact, this is actually a big issue in, in rocks and shoals, like medical infrastructure to have those things where Tana really is an ideologue that he has this idea, this abstract ideology that he believes in, and he just wants to keep blowing people up until he can have that. Yeah. I mean, one thing we didn't really talk about is, um, a not very nuanced part of the episode where Tana threatens to, you know, kill thousands of colonists if Kira doesn't do what he wants. And I feel like that's one very clear instance where where I would say his uh his his ends do not justify his means. And I never really thought of this before, but um, you know, maybe this is the episode where everything went wrong and Tana was right because we wouldn't have any of this Dominion nonsense if he had uh, closed <laughs> off that wormhole. <laughs> Wow, this is this is like when I argued that Lorca is actually secretly the most heroic person in all of Star Trek. <laughs> I'm just saying the wormhole does bring some bad stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah. As soon as as soon as the phrase I'm just saying leaves anyone's mouth, you've lost the moral high ground and you know it. <laughs> Well, this is normally the part of the episode where we uh, we like to take a step back from it and uh, invent a cocktail that uh, encapsulates a, a character, a theme, or just you know mimics an actual drink that we see on screen. But this is one of these real serious, real heavy episodes that just just doesn't feel right treating it with that 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 lightheartedness. So we're going to pass on the cocktail this time. Maybe we'll double up next time for 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 Enterprise. But at this point, is that then is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman and I'm Valerie Hoagland. And even though we went fairly long on this episode, I think that there's still a lot to discuss here about the the moral positions here, the historical analogs. Also, perhaps someone might actually have some real concrete answers about whose jurisdiction this is and who, where, which jail Tonalos is actually in now. And uh, we would love to talk with you about those things. So please drop by the forums at claytemplemedia.com or come over to the Clay Temple Media subreddit and talk with us about this episode. And also just a reminder that we are next month, September, going to be holding our vote on Patreon to decide which movie franchise is going to be our next Patreon goal. And we would love for you to join us over there and uh, get to vote in that to make your voice heard. But also, we are so excited to cover Trek movies. And Glenn said we tipped our hand, but genuinely, I would love to cover any of them. Um, it would be so fun. You know, the Abrams verse gets a, gets a lot of hate, but it would be so fun to cover Benedict Cumberbatch's con. So there's something rich in, in, in every instance. And I can't wait to find out what we're going to do. Yeah, it's going to be really exciting to see what it's going to be. And I, I have wanted to do any of these these movies for a long time. Many of them from, from each of these franchises have come up on episodes as we've done them. We have actually watched one Star Trek movie together, I think. Is that right, Valerie? We, won't, we don't need to say which one it is, but I think we've only watched one of them together. So whatever series it is that gets voted in here, uh, it will be making up for some some lost ground, some things that we just yeah, have just been missing in our Star Trek coverage, and it'll be really fun and really interesting to do that. But all right, next month, we're going to be back with our first episode on Enterprise. It's going to be Future Tense. And until then, stay spacey. 